Welcome to the hidden bookcase. Come in, have a seat, get comfy. It's just next to the sliding library ladder and just below the shelf titled Queer Fairy Tale Retellings. Pick a book, your favourite book. That's the one that opens this room. Inside you'll find a warm fire, a loving cat, and a wide skylight to the stars. And a really towering to-be-read pile. I'm Morgan, I use they-them pronouns, and I am a mouse that lives inside your shoes. I'm Soren, I use he-him pronouns, and I'm the Aspen Forest sending you strange and haunting dreams. We've been friends for 10 years and are always swapping books. But despite having the same taste in books, we never get round to reading each other's recommendations. It's always just another one on the pile. It's a seriously big pile now. It might crush me in my sleep. So each month we're going to force each other to read a book. The newbie will do a blind react to the book, and then we'll both go away and read it, and then we'll return to chat about it directly into your ears. So this week, let's get to talking about... Dark and Deepest Red by Anna-Marie McLemore. Soren, tell me... Where you discovered this book. Give me a summary of the book. Sell this book to me. So, Dark and Deepest Red is a young adult fantasy novel on a dual timeline following Lala, a Romany girl in Strasbourg at the time of the Dancing Plague, and two modern-day teenagers, Emile and Rosea, who live in this town where fantastical things happen when this strange glimmer appears in the sky every single year. I have been reading Anna-Marie McLemore since I saw their name on a Tumblr post of recommendations of queer books. In fact, I spent ages trying to track down their books because we are British and I cannot bloody find any of them here. And eventually I found some audiobook versions of some of them. I think Dark and Deepest Red was the first one that came out after I had like, discovered them as an author. So... I was very excited. With that out of the way, shall we listen to your blind reaction? Okie dokie. I'm excited about this. I know very little about the book that I am about to read, um, Deep and Darkest Red by Anna-Marie McLemore. Um, I've read one of their other books, uh, When the Moon Was Ours, so I'm expecting queer characters of several different variety. Um, I know it's a fairy tale retelling of some sort because that's the theme of this week, but other than that, I'm not sure. Magical realism. Um, there's dancing women on the cover, but there's also like vines and briars. So I don't know. I'm just very excited to read. <laughs> okay, my favourite part of that has to be you getting the title wrong. <laughs> I thought it was Deep and Darkest Red for the longest time. Because <laughs> they sound like... It's two D words, okay? It is, it is, it is indeed. But also you weren't looking at the cover. <laughs> while you recorded that. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> Listen. Um, I mean, I got what I said on the tin, you know? You know, yeah, you were completely, to be fair, apart from getting the title wrong, you were actually entirely right. <laughs> you know, I mean, fairy tale retelling, dancing Absolutely. women on the cover. Yep. Um, I wasn't sure what fairy tale retelling going in it was. I was like, it could be, and even when I was actually reading like the first few pages, I was like, we've got Briar references, which could yeah. be Cinderella. We've got Sleeping Beauty kind of vibes. We've got, you know, shoes as well, Cinderella. But no, it was in fact a red shoes retelling. The cover is beautiful. Um, I'm obsessed with the cover. It is, um, it is very pretty. Just the ombre, like the red clouds going to dark. I really like the actual dancing figures as well like they mm. aren't just sort of in like little I mean I'm going to offend you with your dance history but this is like ballerina type poses necessarily that I like mean, you would... they're all I pointing mean, they their are... feet it is I... ballet but I'm yeah. saying it's like actual ballet as opposed <laughs> to like what you would draw in a children's book for ballet if you see what I mean like there's like yeah. leaps happening and stuff they're really really going for those back bends which I appreciate although they do look shoeless on the cover I mean, they might be, to be fair. And on the back, we have a moon 
It's very pretty. Yeah. Is it a moon? It's red. Yeah. I thought it, looks it was like the moon. moon. Maybe it's the glimmer. Maybe it's the glimmer. Speaking of, why did you pick this book, Soren? Well, partly because we were doing fairy tale retellings, um, of course. <laughs> partly just out of selfishness, I wanted to reread this book because the first time I read it, I felt like I was quite in it and I kind of wanted a second time around to sort of, you know, understand the pacing of it. A lot of the content in this book was like, some of it was a bit triggering to me personally on the first read. So I was like, I need to have another look at it so that it's less of an emotionally charged experience and sort of get like a proper view of like how I genuinely feel about it. Mm. And I mean, I thought that you would enjoy the the sort of low-key fantasy vibes of it and the general queerness of it. I mean, I, I did partly pick it just for the ending, honestly. <laughs> we do love a soft ending. We do love, you know, healing from generational trauma and establishing a queer commune. Honestly, I really was not expecting the queer commune. I actually found this book really hard to read because I was fully expecting... I should have trusted the author more. I've read their stuff before. I should have trusted them. But the whole book, I was like, I'm so scared. Oh, absolutely. I, mean, I was terrified. I was like, Lala's going to die. Alifair's going to die. Tante's going to die. I'm stressed. Yeah, I mean, they fully imply as well that they are in fact going to die. So There was a bit where I thought Alifair was already dead. I was like, that was yes. a bit anticlimactic. What? <laughs> I also had that a bit, actually. I think that one chapter, it's kind of a, a bit vaguely misleading. But yeah, the the queer colony. I literally wrote in my book, like, queer colony? Queer colony. And Maybe also... queer colony can be out always. <laughs> also, what is in the water in this town? Is everyone secretly gay? Because icon moment. A lot of people are secretly gay. I mean, like, I'm never one to be like, there's too many queer characters in this book. But a lot of people are secretly gay. That's a lot. Like, I mean, good for you. Also, like, Henna and Garusha, loves of my life. I was paying a lot more attention to them this time because I was like, I know that they are, mm. like, relevant to the plot and they're not just here. And I was I was enjoying their, their dynamic a lot. They're cute. Mm. Yeah, I really thought that there was going to be something between um, Lada and Eneline. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if there was supposed to be sort of and like maybe Lala just like hadn't acknowledged it in herself or something but I feel like there was definitely a crush there yeah one of my notes literally says oh shit you're gay bestie (laughs) (laughs) because she's very obsessed with Eneline she's so obsessed with Eneline the whole um pressure to look beautiful when Eneline is around obviously comes from the race thing and the different standards of beauty thing but also it's it's only Eneline you know, mm. she has other white friends who she does not feel this way necessarily around. So it's like, I need to look perfect for Eneline. And I'm like, okay, tell me more. Okay, I'm going to say one thing. Say one thing. Tense changes. Yes. Mm. I came into this book being like, oh my God, third person present, the love <laughs> yeah. of my life. You got, you got faked out. The fan fiction tense. Literally, I will read anything written in third person present. And then by the end of it, I was like, I have no idea what tense we're in. I'm so confused. We're going back and forth. It was quite stressful. <laughs> and the, the shift from first person to third person as well, really. I don't think that that was necessary. I think that if you're going to change dramatic person, there has to be a reason for it. And I honestly don't, you know, if there was one that I, I didn't pick up on it, to be completely honest. Mm, I could have seen if Lala had been in first person, everyone else had been in third person. Yeah, maybe. The fact that Rosella was and Emil wasn't really... Precisely. Yeah, maybe happy. if they had both been as well, it would have sort of mm-hmm. matched up a little bit more. Yeah, I think especially with how 
long the chapters are because some of them are like two pages long. So you have hardly any time in that tense before suddenly being dragged back to the sense you were in the previous chapter. But I do, I really do love McLemore's writing style. I think it's so pretty. Some would call it purple prose. I'm, I'm a proud part of the purple prose brigade. I think it's beautiful. There are some quotes here I had to highlight because they were just so, they just sounded right. We will hold them in our hearts, but not on our tongues. A beautiful quote. There's with nothing but the faintest breath of moonlight outside, the darkness is so thick that Lala's dress, her hair, her skin feels woven from night. There's a lot of like very strange metaphors, which are just so out there, but you understand what they're trying to say immediately. It invokes the exact right emotion. Yeah, I was thinking that. Oh, well, what I write sometimes, like, if I have a weird metaphor, I feel the need to sort of over-explain it. Sometimes they don't really explain what it is that they're talking about, and it just still works. Like, you know exactly what they're saying because of like the surrounding context. They have that confidence as a writer. The heat between their fingertips, like 10 small identical stars, could not craft a Strasbourg in which they would both be allowed to live. Yes. Oh no, the yearning. Also, shortly after this, a wound care scene, which is my bread and butter. Absolutely. Absolute trope. And the love language being colours of flame. So inventive. Absolutely. I love that so much. Speaking of their metaphors, the way that they use metaphors that characters themselves would use really helps to like get into their mindset. Like yes. all of Emil's science metaphors and all of Lala's being like to do with dye. Yeah, and you can see the thread of like colours through from like the dyes that Lala talks about through to the flames that Emil talks about, which is just another like connection that keeps them together. Yeah, no, that's gorgeous. And then the way that that comes back at the end as well is very satisfying. Mm. Clearly very intentional. The quote that I liked from that bit was, um, he could show her the stained glass blue of copper sulfate crystals because he could not tell her in words that this was his heart, jagged and almost familiar and made of something that felt far more threatening than beautiful. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, beans. Oh, beans. <laughs> what else can I say? I mean, you know, sometimes that's all you can say. Oh, beans. It feels very lyrical. It's very visually based, but it doesn't bother to try and describe things like they look. It just describes them with how they vibe. That is exactly what I was struggling to articulate earlier with that is very transportive. Let's use the fancy psychology word because <laughs> you do get into the <laughs> zone of the characters thinking... This is how it would feel to be in this situation as opposed to just a rote description, which also mm -hmm. I think is a weirdly a thing that fantasy does a lot because they're trying so hard to establish that they have nuanced world building and that they know how everything works, that they try really hard to be like, this is exactly how it is. Whereas this focus on like how it feels, I think is a lot more absorbing in certain circumstances. I studied poetry, just to let you all know, <laughs> but it's very much like poetry in that way in the sort of the focus should be entirely on the vibes and not on the sense like there are certain bits where I lose the plot in McLemore books I'm just like I don't know what's going on I'm just here for the ride and honestly I'm, I'm happy with it <laughs> not mad about it yeah but I think that's what makes it so beautiful and it makes you feel something I feel like as long as I'm feeling something nothing else matters I don't need to understand what's going on. If you're inhabiting the characters, sometimes it's a little bit more transportive to not know entirely what's going on because in real life you also don't know what's going on all the time. I feel like from that sense it kind of works. Mm. Who was your favourite character? I, You know who my favourite character was. 
<laughs> you don't need to ask me this question, Morgan. You've met me as a person. Tell me for the listener, Soren. It was unfair. Of course. He's, he's trans. He lives in the woods. He vibes with the wolves. Of course, he's my favourite character. I, I like him a lot. I, I find it interesting. He has almost no dialogue, which I noticed even the first time reading, but a second time reading, I noticed it more. But I think he's still really strongly characterised, partly by Mugglemore's like very individual prose. You know, they have a certain lexicon that they use for characters. Not to be GCSE English, but a lexical field, if you will. A lexical field? Is that the word? There you go. I well, <laughs> I was explicitly told at A-level, do not use the word lexical field. Oh. But I haven't found another word for like using very similar descriptors, vocabulary that all fits under a specific umbrella. What about you? Who was your favourite? I mean, you know me, I am a sucker for would do anything for their loved one, you know, ride or die. I am the most powerful bitch in this town. Fuck you all. La la, my beloved. That was, that was also my guess, honestly. <laughs> no, it's the two well at this point. I also love Lala very, very much. She is very cool. She really just goes for it. She has the audacity and I respect her so much for that. I think she's also really interesting as a young adult protagonist. When the Dancing Plague originally begins, she kind of doesn't... I mean, she cares. She's like, I don't want this to be happening to people. And she does try to help but she's not like, this is my problem to solve, which I feel like mm. a lot of random young adult protagonists just sort of, if anything happens in their vicinity, they take it on themselves in this kind of bizarre, very unusual way. I don't doubt that there are people that would see something happening, you know, in their neighbourhood or in their community and go, okay, it's on me to fix this. But I also think that the majority of people aren't like that and mm. would go, you know, obviously this is really sad and I'll do what I can to help, but I don't think that I have the tools necessary to be the one to like put an end to this. And mm. she's she's like, I'm not going to fix this until it becomes an imperative for her, where she's like, I need to fix this if I want to survive and I want my family to survive. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, I do find that conflict between Alifair and Lala so interesting in that like, he's like, we have to help. And he is very much more like the Stockway protagonist. And Lala is like, it will only put us in danger is much more about self-preservation. And I find it so interesting how they differ in that. Yeah, and particularly I find that interesting from a writer of colour. I feel like it's almost, it's a bit of a white saviour thing to be like, this thing is happening, let's go fix it. Mm. And obviously Lala's going, hang on, we can't do that because by doing that, that's dangerous for us. I thought that was an interesting conflict between them from that perspective as well, given that Alifa does have privileges that Lala doesn't have, even if he also has vulnerabilities that she doesn't. Mm. Characters, what about Emil and Rosea? They're okay. Yeah. I was much more invested in Lala and Alifair. And I mean, I like the parallels. I like Emil reaching back in time through to Lala. I like the fake out of his parents going, they're dead. And then finding out later on, like through that reconnection of family history, they didn't die. They made it out. They had their lovely queer little commune. I'm not one usually for historical fantasy, so I was quite surprised mm. that that's what I latched onto more. I'm way more an urban fantasy person. But I feel the modern plotline was way more about vibes, not a lot less about sense, and it was slightly too little sense for me to grasp what was going on. Like, I understood what was going on, but there didn't seem to be motives in the same way. I felt the connection between Lala and Alifair and Derenia. I felt that emotional stake, whereas... Rosea and Emil, I understood they had a past. I understood what their story was about. 
but one moment they're mostly strangers and the next moment they're having sex on the floor in the forest. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't a huge fan of that either. And also the red shoes did feel a bit uncomfortable to me in the area of consent. Yeah, it's Rosea doesn't seem to have any romantic interest in Emil until the shoes. And then obviously they seem to maintain that relationship after she takes them off. So I suppose that's an indication that, mm. you know, all she needed was something to sort of notice him. But it is a little bit odd, I think. I, I, I also was like, hmm, that's... A little dubious there. I'm not sure about that. Mm. Like, I understand if it's just a little push to give you confidence, but it does feel a bit like there's a magical altered state. The problem is it's presented as a push, and for the other girls, it clearly is just a push because that's what we hear. I mean, at least as far as we know, that's basically the story that we're given. But we also know that Rosea's red shoes repeatedly nearly dance her off cliffs and into oncoming traffic and things. So Mm. they clearly have the ability to push her to do things beyond her consent. So as a reader, you don't trust necessarily that in other situations, they're not also violating her consent or violating anyone else's consent because we've seen them in that context where they are actually trying to like physically harm her. Hmm. I found them a little bit more compelling on a second read and Emil, a lot of the harsing struggle and stuff was quite interesting to me personally being mixed, but I, I don't think that they were as well explored. I mean, I guess it is more difficult in some ways because their conflict was a lot more internal. Hmm. Lala and Alifair's whole thing is like, let's try not to get burned at the stake, lads. Whereas these guys (laughs) (laughs) are trying to reconcile generational trauma and Hmm. everyday racism and things like that, which is obviously difficult. I mean, like if you take Encanto, which I'm assuming that everybody knows, they externalise that internal conflict with the house literally falling. And I suppose they externalise that internal conflict here with the red shoes dancing Rosea into danger. But Hmm. I feel like it's not as clear a thread and it doesn't necessarily work as well. Yeah, I thought it was also interesting. I'm looking at the front cover of the dust jacket now and it's framed as two girls 500 years apart. Mm. You go in expecting Rosea and Lala to be the connection across the period. And then Emil's just like, hi, I'm also here, besties. And his connection with Lala is arguably more important because he's the one that has that ancestral connection there. Mm, exactly. I mean, I suppose um, Rosea also does have the connection in the red shoes and mm. the implication that it's a familial trade and stuff and that there was some involvement there. But it's mm. it's not as clear. It's much more tenuous. Yeah. I did find it interesting going through and being like, the red shoes were supposed like in the future or in the, mm. in the present day. They're like, oh yeah, red shoes cured the plague. But then when you're in the 500 years ago, they're like, no one's allowed to wear red. You will get the plague. You will die. Yeah. I really, really liked that disconnect between the past and the future. Yeah, I enjoyed that as well. It's just that little thing of you can't really know the details. And mm. that must be, I don't know if you read the author's note that McLemore's talk about. I did not. That's fair. <laughs> I'm the kind of person who reads the book and goes, finally, I'm done. I can add that to the Goodreads. <laughs> That's fair. But they talk a little bit about the Red Shoes thing because they were trying to research that connection. Um, when they're writing this book, obviously. And they found a lot of conflicting accounts about whether or not it was the cure, whether it was um, a thing that was deliberately being keeping away from them, whether it was only given to people after they had been cured of the dancing plague as a mark of their healing and things. It was like all of these conflicting accounts. So, um, so I think that was a reflection of that specific historical context where they were like, oh, I don't know what to think there. And also they were trying to find some evidence that Hans Christian Andersen based the fairy tale on the dancing plague but they couldn't find anything so Mm. yeah now for the most important part of this podcast cat watch let's talk about the cat 
Yes, I do love the cat, whose name I haven't written down and I've immediately forgotten, but she's very cute. Begins the G. Goethe? Goethe. Goethe. Yes. I just, I love a good cat, even if the cat is misogynistic, I will always love a good cat. You know, maybe it's not the, f- the cat's fault that she's misogynistic. She's a magic cat, so maybe maybe cat. the men and the magic baked that into her. It's a bit rude. Predeterminism. <laughs> yeah, the system is corrupt. So I did find it interesting though that she's the only thing that's ever lasted of the magic. Yeah, I felt like that was kind of underexplored. It's it's such a established thing that nothing from the magic in the town lasts. <laughs> and then yeah. they're just like, oh, apart from this misogynistic cat. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like if you try and keep something about the magic, like, it will turn on you. I mean, maybe the cat has turned on them, it's just turned on a woman. Maybe Emil's mum kept it, and that's why it hates women. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe that. But, but apparently Emil's, it likes Emil's mum, which is a confusing oh, okay. element of this conspiracy theory that we're building here. I mean, the magic does feel a bit misogynistic, considering it's only doing to women in this one. Like, well, to be fair, there's one little line at the end... Which oh yes, I did appreciate. Yeah, I did appreciate that so much. I was like, "Really? Do you only make women's shoes? Do you only make? Oh, okay. You only make women's shoes, but not only women wear them, which we love." Absolutely. Actually, speaking of subverting gendered magic to an extent, and also I do think that this kind of does—it's that like wildness that only affects the women—is kind of interesting. Sort of like bloodlusty kind of magic, sort of like a mania. Hmm. It's kind of it kind of ties into like you know ideas of like hysteria, but at the same time, it's the aggression of it is quite masculine in a way, which I thought was kind of interesting. Mm. I did really appreciate how manic it felt. It did feel very realistic. It felt like a depiction of mental health in a way as well, because it's very much like out of your control. Sort of like even when Emil first sees Rosea, he's like, "Oh, she's just dancing," whereas Mm. like. Actually, she's like having a breakdown, falling off the cliff. <laughs> yeah, from her perspective, it's completely different as well. And also, I feel like a lot of the um, the red shoes scenes, particularly with Rosea, are like fully crossing the line into horror, which I enjoyed. Um, mm. Like her just trying to get them off is is incredibly disturbing. Yeah, it was genuinely horrifying to read and be like, I feel that panic, I feel that stress, that sort of like horror rising up in her throat of sort of like am I ever going to get these off are they going to dance me to death and like being the reader and sort of knowing the history and seeing the two instant being women together I genuinely was like is this going to be a tragedy I didn't expect Eneline to die but she's gone without a word yeah completely off page as well which is really kind of harsh and sudden that she's just gone like she's fine when you see her and then Lola comes back and she's, she's dead I think that's the turning point where I was like Anyone can die. Lala's going to die. Alifair's going to die. Everyone's going to die. So final thoughts. I think it was a good read. I think I've been wanting to read it for a while. I trust the author. I know you really love this book. So it's been on the list for ages. But the narrative changing really threw me. I mean, you're going to really hate me when I say I did, in fact, rate Dark and Deepest Red a three. I may have seen that on Goodreads this morning. (laughs) So I'm not surprised. You know, I really, I did enjoy it. I enjoyed it a lot. But that fear throughout the entire book that it was going to end badly and also the narrative tense changes and dramatic personality changes just made it less enjoyable than 
you know, other books by this order that I read. Yeah, I mean, I think that's incredibly valid. Like, if you're exploring trauma and oppression like this, it's quite intense and it's like a, it's a difficult balance to strike. I had to take a two-week break on my first read of it. It's quite validating to hear you say that because the first time I just thought that this was my personal thing about having people burned at the stake, <laughs> or I just can't handle that. But I, I especially, I mean, I'm seeing it myself on the reread that it was clearly a little bit more than that, and it is just so um, intense and reflective of real life atrocities that it can be difficult to get through so I think that's a very reasonable rating. Mm. I think I would reread it in like a year's time and see if I enjoyed it more now that I know what's going to happen going in and like I'm focused on other characters a bit more. What did you rate it? I would probably give it a four. I don't think I would give it a five because again the narrative changes do sort of rub me the wrong way as well particularly the dramatis personae and there are little hitches in pacing in places where I just think that things could have been neatened up a bit Mm. but I do still really enjoy it I think it's a really interesting exploration of like trauma and identity if you spoke to someone who likes this book what other books would you recommend that they read I mean you got to check out some of the other works by this author When the Moon Was Ours is one of those popular I think it's quite popular queer books that it's very lovely pretty it's a really good introduction to magical realism we love a good romance between a girl and a trans dude knowing the author's personal context like a lot of their work feels like a love letter to trans partners and to trans people and i think that's really lovely so would definitely recommend apart from that cemetery boys by aiden thomas is definitely one to look out for especially if you enjoyed the latina culture being explored on Rosé's side of Dark and Deepest Red, you get a lot more of that with Cemetery Boys and you get the magical realism. Next time, I will be forcing Soren to read Peter Darling by Austin Chant. It is a queer retelling of Peter Pan. Not exactly retelling so much as sequel, but also retelling. But I'm not going to say anything more because Soren has to do a blind react to it. And I do, I do. Tell me what he doesn't know about it. Until then, you're always welcome through the bookcase. Don't forget to give the cat a scritch on your way out. Thank you for listening to The Hidden Bookcase, a production of Planar Prod. On this episode, you heard Morgan Greensmith and Soren Briarwood discussing Dark and Deepest Red by Anna-Marie Mucklemore. You can find out more about this book at author.annamariemucklemore.com and you can follow Mucklemore at Marie on Twitter. You can find The Hidden Bookcase on Twitter at Hidden Bookcase and on Instagram, Facebook, Tumblr and TikTok at Hidden Bookcase Podcast. Find out more about Planar Prod at planarprod.com. Know what we should read next, or want to chat to us about what you thought of this episode's read? You can reach us at thehiddenbookcase at gmail.com, or send us a DM on social media. We'd love to hear from you. If you're enjoying The Hidden Bookcase, please consider leaving us a rating or review, or you can always tell a friend how to find us. Your whispers are the best way for bookworms to discover our show. On our next episode, which will be out on Monday, the 20th of June, we'll be discussing Peter Darling by Austin Chant. We hope to see you then, and in the meantime, you're always welcome through the bookcase.